Now, the Jen Charlton Show on 930 WFMD and WFMD.com. Telling it like it is with your host, Jen Charlton. Good morning and welcome, everyone. It is so great to be here with you. Thank you. Thank you for being here and listening. And we have a really great show coming for you. And I reached out to some friends of mine who I respect immensely in the banking and finance world and business. And I thought it was important for us to cover so you're t- you have resources and information to be equipped to deal with what's going on in banking and finance right now. Because in the world of money, and there's a bunch of you probably a lot better at it than me, but in the world of money, we trade our time to earn it in work. We hopefully save. We create a nest egg. And at the end of our life, we hope there's some left over after we've managed to have a pretty good retirement, fun and vacation and so forth. There's enough left over that we can pass it along as a legacy to our descendants and they can go on and build the wealth from there. So we put a lot of stock, pun intended, in raising that money, investing it wisely, and being prepared for what's coming at us. Now, we've talked in the past. You might remember a friend of mine, Mike Scarborough, came on years ago, years ago, and he talked about about 98% of the people are, are not ready for retirement and will not have enough money to live out their years. It's a really, really high number. So that could be a little depressing, but it's the point is you need to be prepared and you need to invest wisely and hopefully make good decisions. Then we have something coming at us called a tsunami of external circumstances that require us to navigate through the churning waters I want to remind us of 2008 and 2010. We're going to talk about that today. I have with me in the studio Gordon Cooley, who's the former president of PNC Bank and first United Bank and Trust. He's also uh, was the former uh, commissioner of banking under the Hogan administration. So he has a wealth of knowledge, and he's also an attorney, which I find really fascinating to have that combination. So he's going to help us look at this in a wise way. And I also reached out to Bill Dodson, who's a U.S. manufacturer. He actually is an international manufacturer based in Southern Maryland, very wise in the business and money and finance aspect. So when we come back from the break, what I'd like to do is have an opportunity for us to speak with Gordon, and we'll bring Bill in. And you're going to get lessons in things like Dodd-Frank. Because out of 2008-2010 crisis, when the values plummeted, remember that? There was this awareness made that housing was made so affordable that everybody could buy a home. Remember that? Everybody should have their own home. The only problem is if you can't afford to pay for it, it's probably not a good plan. Because you get locked into something you can't handle. I'd like to thank our sponsor, Sweeties on the Creek, and we'll be right back. This is Jen inviting you to follow us on several different social media platforms. Our new The Jen Charlton Show Rumble channel. That's The Jen Charlton Show on Rumble. Wherever you get your podcasts, make sure to rate us, five-star rating, like us, because you do, and share it with all your friends so that other people can have access to this important information. And also remember to download the WFMD app. It's there for you to listen to us every Saturday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, wherever you are on this great globe. 
We look forward to having you with us right here on WFMD. Welcome back. It's great to have you here. And I want to just introduce my guest with so much love and affection. I've had the pleasure of being on a board. We both served on the Weinberg board together and have done much good works here in the community. I'd like to welcome to the Jen Charlton Show, Gordon Cooley, who was the local president for PNC Bank, First United Bank and Trust. He also sits currently on the board of Woodsboro Bank. We welcome you. Thanks for being with us, Gordon. I appreciate the invitation. Yes. So tell us a little bit about your ideas about what's going on now in banking. We've seen several banks failing in California. When I did some research for today, when I went back, 2008, 2010, actually, there's an article about 11 banks across the country. They were shutting them down right and left. Give us a little bit of background because out of that was born the Dodd-Frank policy that is with the CFTC. So give us a little history before we launch into current reality. Banking as a general rule, is highly regulated. Uh, it takes a lot of bar- – there are a lot of barriers to entry. Uh, there are a lot of requirements once you get there. And there are a lot of requirements to stay as a bank, mostly relating around the idea of, of continuing to be healthy so that you can support your customers. Um, in 2008, we had experienced in, in the mid-2000s um, a situation where credit standards were um, loosened and – the process by which credit was extended um, became different. Um, instead of uh, the, the things that we're used to currently, where you apply for a mortgage loan and you're asked to bring in pay statements and tax returns and uh, verification of the deposits you have in other organizations and that sort of thing, banks, because of rising um, real estate values and a long history of of good economic times um, began to loosen those standards. And so they were not checking uh, by not asking for uh, verification of of those items to prove your income, to prove your net worth, and to to show that you were able to, to repay your loans. And so what happened was people obtained loans, were not able to pay those loans, and then banks had to take the actions of reserving more of their capital against the uh, against the potential losses of those loans. And as they reserved more and more of their capital because of deteriorating loan quality, um, they were left many times without sufficient capital to repay the depositors who would ask for their money. And the commonality between 2008 and today is that you saw – with Silicon Valley Bank, a number of their customers asking for their deposits uh, to be returned. And uh, Silicon Valley Bank was not in a position of being able to do that. Um, Which is but, what we call liquidation. Well, Liquid. liquidation is the uh, liquidation is the is the term for winding down the affairs of a bank. Liquidity is the, the, the process or the concept that a bank must have enough liquid assets to meet the demands of their depositors. Uh, at all times. Um, and so we can talk about that as well. But in, in this current environment, um, I'm not aware that – I don't know the specifics of Silicon Valley Bank, but from what I've read in the trade press uh, and in the, in the general press, Silicon is not the only bank that has experienced um, the effects of a rising rate environment within, um, 
And when you say rate, interest rates. Interest rates. The Fed's raised interest rates a number of times this year. And basically what that has the effect of doing is reducing the value of the assets that a bank owns. Banks, let's go back to the beginning. Banks basically do two things. They they take in deposits and they make loans. And when they and have And they make money on money. Well, they do. Um, they're able to take they're able to take the, the the depositors deposits which are assets to the depositor but liabilities to the bank. They use those monies to make loans to people for their homes and for their businesses. And if they have additional deposits left over because they don't have that much loan demand, they will buy government bonds, government notes, and high-quality investment-grade bonds. And over time, when there is um, when there is inflation, the value of those bonds is actually less than what the banks paid for them. Because if you were going into the into the world today and you bought a hundred dollar bond, interest rates go up. That same bond could be bought for $98. And so there's a loss that a bank is looking at if it would sell the bond because a big depositor came in and said, I need my $100. So in our in layman terms, we mm-hmm. could say they're upside down. Yes. Gotcha. That's, that's a good way of saying it. Okay. Um, and so my understanding is that with Silicon Valley Bank, the, 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 the rate of people asking for their deposits back was quicker than they could convert their um, – their bonds into cash and be able to pay back. Which we call a run on the bank. Could be, yes. Um, Panic hits, people start to withdraw cash. The uncertainty says people would rather hold the money in their hand than than trust the instruments that they've purchased. So there's a couple things that I think people I talk to often are concerned about, Mm -hmm. which may be contributing to this, quote, Mm -hmm. run on the bank. Now, in the case of Silicon Valley, by virtue of their name, they're located in California in the heart of big tech. Mm-hmm. Kind of interesting given some of the arguments for, you know, I'll say against big tech right now and some of the things that they've been doing that maybe exceed their purview in terms of uh, influencing uh, elections, which is a different conversation for another day. But when you do look at CBDC, central bank digital currency, there's a move, and there was a bill signed by President Biden, executive order. It wasn't a bill. It was an executive order. He said, this shall be last March, and it's, it went into effect in mid-December. So I'm pulling this out of my brain. So here we are three months later, and people have been concerned, are we losing the fiat currency? Are we going to a gold standard again, et cetera, et cetera? Do you see any of that playing into what occurred at Silicon Bank? And I'll say one more thing. It is my understanding, and it, we need to verify it and we need to dig. But because of all the big tech money in Silicon Valley, there is also Chinese money in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. And there is also potentially, because Chinese money in big tech is usually tied to the Chinese Communist Party, CCP. So is any of that playing into what's going on here? Is, In other words, could this be an isolated incident that hopefully we're not going to see across the country because of the dynamics of Silicon Valley Bank and what's going on in California with money? Well, how much time do you have? <laughs> uh, I think the short answer is I don't really see that as being any of that that you spoke about as being a driver. Um, the, the 
uh, the, the digital currency that you talk about is something that the banks have been or that the government and banks have been looking at for, I'm going to say, at least the last 10 years uh, since uh, cryptocurrency first broke on the scene. Um, up to this point, um, what I what I understand to be the case is our government has in, has basically said we need to investigate this further because there might be some value to creating a system of digital currency. But that has not been created yet. The digital currencies that are in circulation today uh, are uh, very different from the United States currency because th those currencies are not backed really by anything, um, as whereas your dollar in your pocket or your quarter in your pocket is backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government. FDIC. Uh, well, actually, banks, bank deposits are backed by FDIC insurance, which is ultimately backed by the by the government. Um, and so... But in other words, I think what you're saying, it's the accepted currency. It is. And gotcha. it's it's the, the the U.S. dollar is is frankly the, the the commonly accepted standard across the across the world. Other banks, other countries come to the United States to put their money because they know it's the safest place to be. And so um, I, y your premise that that the digital currency is part of this, I, I don't think that it is. Now, let's let's talk about. Um, let's talk about Silicon Valley and uh, and the types of businesses that are there. If you think about it, everybody that wants to start a business doesn't get a successful business. Many people try to start a business, and it and it takes years and years to get started, and sometimes it fails um, in that it doesn't start or it starts and it ends poorly. If you think about it, Silicon Valley had um, – a niche in in the in the banking world of banking those types of businesses, and so you could expect what we'd say volatile, very volatile, and 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 frankly, banks or organizations that might have a need for their cash much more quickly than businesses that most of us work for or most of us own, because they great risk is taken on in those bank in those businesses and great reward can come but but when things aren't going well they still need cash to pay their their employees whether they whether they're earning money or not and, and let's let's assume they're earning some money and then their and then their business model doesn't work very well they use their deposits they use their savings to pay their bills and at some point they're out of savings and so they start needing the cash that they have in their in their deposit account and so that's when they go to the bank and say, I need this. And uh, if a lot of those businesses would do that all at the same time, banks could arguably or understandably have a, a, a difficult time in raising cash immediately in that amount and for that many customers. If you look here, uh, <clears throat> the Frederick County economy is, is, is a solid economy because it has – Agriculture, it has small business, it has government technology, it has technology, it has government lending, um, it has government. Uh, um, I'm losing the word. Um, contractors. Government contractors. Thank you. So um, it has education. It it has some. You know, it has some forestry. It, it has a number of well-rounded that mm -hmm. meet, that would suggest that not. All of those segments of the economy locally are going to be in a cash need at any one time. And so the spikes that we might see are going to be less because of the diversification in our economy. And you may not find that in Silicon Valley. 
Um, I can't speak to Silicon Valley, but based on what I read, I think that's um, a reasonable take on on the local economy. So let's talk about a couple of things. Sure. One, of, one of the things you said was at the opening is there are certain conditions under which a mm-hmm. bank gets started. One of those is, from my understanding, is the amount of cash they need on mm-hmm. hand to open up because to operate the business, mm-hmm. to your point, they have to have liquidity. Mm-hmm. What is that percentage or ratio to, I don't sure. know, assets to liabilities, however they do that? Well, uh, for a startup bank, um, the idea of a $10 million, $20 million, $30 million capital raise to get seed money in the bank is not unreasonable because the regulators are looking for the bank to have the ability to break even in their third year, meaning they know the bank is going to lose money the first year while they're getting started, hopefully lose less money the second year while they're getting started. But by the end of the third year, they will have figured out, figured out is not really the right word, but they will have developed enough clients to make loans, developed enough clients to provide deposits, and been able to develop enough staff to be able to do all that profitably. And so um, if you think about it that way, there's a lot of, there's a lot of cost of going into banking. Then on an ongoing basis, um, banks are required to keep capital, um, which is essentially what you would have if you sold all your assets and converted to cash, paid all your liabilities, it would be what was left over. And that what's left over needs to be based on the way you measure it anywhere between six and eight and 10 percent. Um, and the cap and the calculations ba- are based on which assets you put in the mix and which liabilities you put in the mix. And they even risk weight them. So it, it's a complicated process. But just know that the idea is banks are supposed to be able to have uh, to be well capitalized. I'll say 10 percent uh, capital to be adequately capitalized, 8 percent capital on an ongoing basis. Okay. okay, very good. So now let's let's fast forward to mm-hmm. current reality. Sure. When you look at, you know, they, they had the 2010, 2008-2010 crisis. Mm-hmm. They put in measures. The Dodd-Frank bill was designed to, I guess, mitigate that from happening again. They put in certain stop measures. Do you Can you speak to a couple of what they did through Dodd-Frank? Briefly, um, the regulators created a series of stress tests that um, took – that required banks to take their balance sheets on certain days of the year and run them through a scenario of interest rate spikes, interest rate reductions. Um, you mean like right pan- now? A pandemic. <laughs> you uh, mean like what we've well, been through? Well, yeah, but what we've been through over the last three years. Correct. They've thrown in it all, all those things. All of it. <laughs> and the idea is let's model to see how well your bank stands up with your current assets and liabilities. And so once you pass the stress test, you were given another year to work. If you didn't pass the stress test, you had a result of you need to work on these things. And that's what banks have been doing for the last 10 to 15 years. Which government entity is responsible for those audits? Um, the banks do them Banks do them themselves and report to their regulator. Banks are regulated either by if you have a state charter, you're regulated by the FDIC in the state. If you have a federal charter, you recognize, you're regulated by the Office of the Controller of the Currency, and um, the Fed plays in there as well. Okay? Gotcha. That's great. So you Very have interesting. multiple regulators regardless of where you go. And- Which is fascinating because they still mess that up. So how, how good is our government doing? Uh, on that note, I think uh, I would give them an F. But 
let's look at bailouts and when sure. is a bank too big to fail? So what happened in 2010? Sure. Actually, it was 2008 because it was still under Bush, I believe. And then it kind of wrapped around to Obama, the whole bailout mm-hmm. of banks. When is a bank too big to fail? Because I think some people – here's the, what I know. And you and I know each other through a lot of work in human services. You know, that was my career. The cost to people who are on the brink of poverty mm-hmm. or living it every day to bank – use money, pay credit cards, mm-hmm. is way higher yeah. than somebody like you and I, where we're more established, our credit works, we have good credit, whatever. Mm-hmm. So that cost of doing business and doing life to somebody who's trying to make it mm-hmm. is significantly higher. They have to pay to cash their checks. They pay probably five point. I don't know, I'm making it up, but points higher than you and I do on credit card ratings. Mm-hmm. And then... These, forgive me for anybody who may fall into this category, rich guys get off the hook because Silicon Valley Bank is saying we're going to back everybody's money, even people like Roblox, some of these massive big tech companies who have billions of dollars in assets are are let scot-free and who's going to bear the brunt of that is going to be the people who are lower and middle class. What do you say about that? Again, that's a very broad question. Let's let's go back to systemically uh, important, too big to fail banks. The the several, the four or five largest banks in the country have been defined as too big to fail, and so on. The one hand, they they know that they have the backstop of the federal government. On the other hand, they have these stress tests, and they have some incredibly strong requirements to meet. Um, there's more scrutiny placed on banks at $10 billion and above. So even not too big to fail, but, you know, we would hurt. Um, they have larger requirements or more stringent requirements as well. Um, because the damage could be greater. To a broader section of the company. Okay, the so company. I want on that note, I yeah. want to take a break. We're going to okay. come back. We're going to really talk about this a little bit further because I think people are worried about where their money sure. is and whether it's safe. Are they going to make it through frankly, the mistakes and errors of banks like Silicon Valley and their smarty pants who sit on their boards who are supposed to know better. You're listening to The Jen Charlton Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Great to have you here with us today. And I have with me in studio Gordon Cooley, who has a banking and finance background. And um, Gordon, we were talking before the break about are banks too big to fail and what happened in the Bush slash Obama administrations where they basically covered the assets of the banks so that they were able to, you know, continue. But we know that costs get passed down the consumer. And we were talking before the break about the cost to lower and middle class folks for doing business with money is higher than for people with good credit, good jobs, good income. So when they're too big to fail, the banks come down, and the next thing you know, they have these costs to recover based on the failure, and they're too big to fail, so they bail them out, but those costs get passed down to the everyday consumers. And I want to use the analogy of insurance. If I have a bunch of accidents, my insurance goes gets jacked up. Your insurance doesn't get jacked up. Mine does. 
how can we make sure that those fees get assigned to the people who exceeded the $250,000 limit on the FDIC? And this might be kind of a rhetorical question, something to ponder. You know, how do we uh, ensure that the people who exceeded those monies are the ones who get those fees, not the everyday Joes who really can't afford it? I want to bring on Bill Dodson from Charles County, who's been listening to our conversation and is a good friend. Good morning, Bill. How are you? I'm doing fine. And uh, the show is fascinating this morning. Uh, Mr. Cooley has done a wonderful job explaining banks and regulations. And the subject's sort of difficult in the weeds, but he's done a great job uh, with it. Thank you. And I, I want your opinion, Bill. You know, you sit on a, a local uh, bank board. Are you willing to say which bank? Uh, no, I don't think that would be right. But I gotcha. want to also say I'm, I'm invested in multiple banks as far as um, I own stock in multiple banks. And uh, I have a I have a, uh, a little different direction here with uh, something you just finished on is um, when we were talking about banks that are too big to fail. This is my concern with this banking crisis. Uh, if you look in the last several days, a lot of money has moved out of local community banks, banks which I'm involved with, and have moved to these big banks that are too big to fail. That's a crisis in itself because the community bank and the small bank, that's the backbone of small business. You were talking about uh, the Silicon Valley Bank, how they were set up to be the bank. Really, not a diversified portfolio, way too geared to one industry, which is the tech industry. But if you look at in uh, across the small business platform, 1986, I started my garage on five people. Probably no bank but my local community bank would have given me a loan. That loan, $20,000 in 1986, I can get twenty-five or $30 million a day. That, that loan was difficult because I didn't have any assets, but my small bank took a bet on me. My worry in this is that people are going to say, I need to move my money out of the small banks and go to J.P. Morgan or State or PNC. All these are not local banks, PNC, Pittsburgh, Bank of America, New York. That's where I'm really worried about this. And, and uh, the last thing I want to say, when you were talking about the bailout, those banks, were given loans at no interest. They, they paid back. So maybe bailout might be too strong a word. Uh, but the banking industry is crucial. The small banking, the community bank is crucial. I'm, I'm, I'm sure your guests would, would agree with this. And so what we don't want to happen in this crisis is the hey, I got to put my money where it wants to be too big to fail back. And remember, the FDIC. As, as your guest said, stands behind $250,000 in under in deposits. 99% of the people don't have over $250,000 in the bank. And so some of this fear may be overblown because if you don't have over $250,000 in the bank, there is no risk. But that, that's a few things I want to start with. Excellent. And I, I really appreciate your perspective as a business owner and what you just said about community banks. You know, we have to resist the urge for a knee-jerk reaction in the market. And it really takes 
frankly, being educated and talking to people like you all listening to our show, sharing this information with others so that people understand more rather than react emotionally. We know that that's never good in money, but we have to be thoughtful about it. So I really appreciate what you said about community banks because I know as a small business owner, we've enjoyed a great relationship with many small community banks. Now, one of the things I've noticed in the past 10 years of me working closely with small community banks is that they often consolidate. They often merge. That's a common thing. You see one pop up. They fund it like Gordon explained in the beginning. They have a few local people who pool their money. Thus, they have access to, you know, the banking industry and probably some of the um, benefits of that. And then at some point, it, 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 it's an asset that's worth selling or merging. Is that accurate, Gordon? Yes, that's what um, that's what a lot of banks do. Um, and there's a, you know, bankers, bankers are not, but investors in banks are entrepreneurial people. And they have a, a desire to grow their own money, and they do that through investing in other companies. Um, the idea, gosh, we, we 100 questions to answer. Um, that's not necessarily a bad thing because in, in healthy communities, when a bank that we're talking about would merge with a larger bank, there's often a group of people uh, who will start another bank to fill the void of that smaller bank. And so you see one bank following another over time. Um, and that, uh, and, and it's, I keeps... think, inherent in capitalism, isn't it, Gordon? Well, yeah, I mean, that's... this is part of the American dream. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's part of the issue. We're, we are not a society that is 100 percent capitalistic and we're and we're certainly not a society that is 100 percent controlled by the government. And so what we're what we're talking about today are some of the rub areas where capitalism and I guess socialism, for want of a better word, um, rub together. And it doesn't it doesn't always feel very well. Let me let me just say as to Silicon Valley Bank, um, you asked about bailing out all depositors. One of the reasons you might want to bail out all depositors in a specific case is because the depositors that are being bailed out are providing jobs and, and other types of uh, services in the local community. They serve on the local boards. They contribute to the local nonprofits. And so if you take a depositor like that and say, I'm sorry, you should have known better, they can't pay their employees. They can't pay their rent. They can't serve on boards. They can't make contributions to local nonprofits. The local community suffers when that occurs. Now, is that necessarily a bad thing? Well, it could be or it couldn't be, but think about it this way. We talked about the investment portfolios of these two banks. Those investment portfolios have lost money in a, in a rising rate environment. If the if the interest rate structure in the United States changes over the over the next year or two, those you mean bonds, after the 2024 election? Well, <laughs> whenever whenever things happen. The point my point is um, when that changes, those bonds that were bought at 100 and might only be worth 85 today, at some point in the future, they're going to be worth 100 again. So you sell those bonds and you recover the money that it cost initially to fund all depositors. If you can hang on to that for if, that period of time. If you can. I am not an economist, but I would suggest if we look at interest rate movements over long periods of time, the period of time between a rate moving up and the rate coming down to a stability level is not as long as we might think. 
take it one step further. After 2008 and all the money that was put into the system and banks borrowed money to stay afloat in a lot of different programs, the last study I saw in about 2015, 2016 suggested that the principal of all of those loans were repaid to the federal government. So the federal government did not lose money by bailing, by sending money to banks so they could continue to operate. I I can't speak. Did they make money or was it a break even? I mean, was it good for business for the government? Well, if you think about the role that all of those banks played in the community and assuming that those banks continued to play that role in their local communities, being able to continue and the government getting back its principal, even if it didn't make any interest on those loans. Plus taxes, et cetera, revenue. was very good because those banks allowed businesses like Bill's and people like you and me that drew paychecks to continue to have a job, to continue to pay our bills, to continue to pay our taxes. And so the world was stabilized, as or at least the United States was stabilized, as a result of these types of programs. Now, should we take the hard line and say we're not ever going to bail out anybody? You can do that. But what's the cost of that? There's a cost of that, just like a cost of making money more readily available in difficult times. Well, as a small business owner who who owns a gym during COVID in Maryland under Hogan's administration, I I can attest to probably nobody's bailing me out. So it's a tough thing to look at that there's when they're picking winners and losers. We'll kind of set it there. And as a reminder, the bankruptcy laws do exist for protection sure. for businesses to navigate through those difficulties. And that should be as much for a big business as it is for a small business. But I do appreciate what you're saying about uh, maintaining a level of uh, constancy in a, in a local environment for jobs and nonprofits and so forth. If I, I can jump in and put yeah. just a little bit more on this. Historically, the United States wanted small banks in local communities so that a failure of one bank did not adversely affect the bank in the neighboring community. But we've gone to a global money market. But here's, and you have for lots of reasons. I can attest because of the time I spent working in Frederick that there was never a time of me working in Frederick where I could meet all of the banking needs of my largest clients. Interesting. So let's think about that. You need to be able to continue to provide banking services to clients that are larger than you can accommodate. So what do we do for that? We can't just tell them you have to stop growing. So that's why banks get bigger. Banks also have been gotten bigger over the years because the regulators have realized that you need more staff that focus 100% on compliance, that focus 100% on risk. And that comes in a lot of different places. Um, banks years ago had very small human relations, human resources departments. Now they have larger ones because of the significance of the staff that you hire and the issues associated with, with managing and, and providing well for, for their, for their well being. So banks have to get bigger to be able to have profits at the end of the day to pay all those salaries. So, and unless, unless we want to argue that you don't really need to worry about those things, we could run the comp- we could run banks a lot less expensively, but I'm not so sure that they would be. It wouldn't risky. be responsible. That's exactly. I right. got it. I so got it. it. There's a balancing act in all of this. Yeah, absolutely. Because you want to take care of your people to the, in an appropriate way. Mm-hmm. Let's take a break now, and when we come back, 
I want to talk about the Biden administration policies that have led us to the point we are now. You're listening to The Jen Charlton Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back. It's Jen, and I have with me today Gordon Cooley in the studio and Bill Dodson calling in from Southern Maryland on the line. And so I want to talk about now policy because banking policy, we have Maryland in legislature right now. We have people listening from all over the country. So other legislatures are in session, and they're having to deal with this banking nervousness that exists across the country right now. And I want your opinions on policy, not only at the state level, but at the federal level. So, Bill, I'm going to toss to you for the first part of this. What are your thoughts in Maryland that need to occur to help businesses like yours and, frankly, nonprofits who may have to go to a bank for money or, you know, everybody's dealing in money? What are your thoughts about policy? Well, uh, first of all, I want to make one point when we were talking about deposits. In my company, our payroll is over $370,000 a week. So when we talk about FDIC 250, companies like mine have to have over a million dollars in the bank just in the payroll account. So I don't want to ever think people to think that, oh, these big wigs with 250. No, when you have a large company, payroll could be more than the FDIC limit. Now, getting back to what the Fed is doing, here's why it's really devastating to manufacturing and businesses because, you know, now your cost of borrowing. A year and a half ago, I had a line of credit at 3%. Now that line of credit at 5%. So now the cost of borrowing is becoming a, a, a burden because, you know, especially in contracts that are two and three years old where I'm now just finally providing the goods, now I have to factor in more money, you know, to get the material before it actually gets manufactured. Secondly, when you look at all the big commercial construction in the Maryland, D.C. metro area and these office buildings that are going up and these big projects, those projects now become more expensive because the cost to borrow. So, you know, and I agree with what Gordon said about, yes, rates go up. But if you look at Powell, he's talking about the next 18 months, rates going down. So there's a curve on rates up and a curve on rates down. Many would argue what the Fed has done is far too steep on the rates up. I mean, going from almost zero to five is pretty damn fast in, in, in a year. So, Well, I would say uh, it's, it's irresponsible that, policy that deeply yes. affects businesses – not only your size, but my size. Yes, because, again, if you go in right now and you're financing a project, uh, you know, your, your, your cost is probably 2% higher today than it was just, you know, seven or eight months ago. And so it's a shock to the system. Now, in Maryland, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty involved with the local le- the legislature through my local delegates and senators. I don't know of any banking regulations that are going through Maryland, um, but on the federal side, of course I'm concerned about the Fed rate going up so fast that my cost of business, uh, you know, I can't, I can't absorb. I mean, I have to just absorb it. I can't pass it on that the cost to do, to do business with my bank is now higher. And, yes, as you said, when the FDIC – raises these insurance rates with the banks, 
of course they're going to have to pass that on ultimately to the consumer in fees or however they do it because it now becomes a cost of business for the bank that they're going to pay higher FDIC rates, uh, insurance rates. And last, I want to say, I don't know if uh, we, most people know this. I know Gordon knows this. Um, there are other bank vehicles uh, to insure your money past the 250. Um, so because the FDIC says we stop guaranteeing your money at 250, there are other instruments that banks use to uh, insure your money up to much higher levels. Okay, Gordon wants to jump in on that. Yeah, I can talk about okay. that. Uh, in fact, Jen and I talked briefly about mentioning it. You're right. Um, the simplest thing to do is go to the go to the bank number two in your community and put some of your excess deposits there, so that in in each of the banks you have two hundred fifty thousand or yep. less. But even staying with the same bank, there are, there are lots of products that banks have created that may not be FDIC insured, but are insured, but are essentially insured by virtue of being pledged, having pledged against them securities, um, and uh, uh, knowing that if if the bank your bank would not open the next day, you have a claim on those securities first before anybody else. And so there there are multiple ways of keeping your money insured. There are a couple of products that have been in the market for years, a Cedars product and something called Intrafi, where um, your bank is able to go out into the market and place some of your money at other banks so that you end up dealing only with one, you, the customer, in, ends up dealing only with the same bank, but your money is being managed in other banks. For you. For you. By Which I love bank. that. I'll and tell the, you, those things. I have always said, I want to, there's a few people I want to look in the eyeball. One is my banker. I want to look that person. I don't want to do online banking. Mm -hmm. That's why I love community banks. I go and I met with you and your team, and we, frankly, moved all our money there. That's what we did because of the relationship. This is so important. It is. Go ahead. I have have the second vehicle, the Interplot, and so I have several million that that is the money moves overnight to other banks. So that's why I want to make sure people understand that are listening. Go talk to your local banker if you have concerns. Look into some of these other vehicles. There should not be anybody out there that <laughs> that thinks that their money is not safe in the bank. Just be diligent. Meet with your banker. Your money is safe. Okay, great, great to today. great to hear. Now on the on the last five minutes here, I just want this to be kind of a round robin discussion. Uh, what do you have to say to the people who aren't wealthy? They, they, you know, they're living paycheck to paycheck. You know, they're making sure that, you know, they meet their needs. But frankly, you know, one big, you know, house repair or car repair away could really throw them a loop. What do you say to people like that? Because, you know, your again, your cost of doing business at the bank is going to be lower than their cost of doing business. So how do people navigate through this to to uh, I'll share from my side, you know, when you have an opportunity to look across your finances and reassign your your assets and your liabilities, this is to me good money management. That that there are times when you have to go through your portfolio, not only your assets but your liabilities. Where's your debt lie? Where are you paying money, and how much to whom? 
so that you can save that cost of doing business on money to the extent that you're able. Any thoughts about that, Gordon? Sure. Um, Many people feel that they're not able to participate in the banking system, and so that's why they use uh, check-cashing businesses. That's why they use wires. That's why they use um, other types of things. Venmo, now digital currency. Things that are provided not by the banking system. My advice is just what we were talking about. Go to your local bank. Talk with them about the abil- your ability to open a checking account. There are checking account products in many banks designed specifically for people that have had trouble managing a bank account. There are bank accounts that are their deposit accounts, a checking account that would allow you to start a, uh, a savings account. And the savings account would be essentially collateral against overdrafting your checking account. And so if you if you work with your local bank and get into the right product, you can see that you'll be able to bank at no cost. And probably start to build some resources that you don't currently have you, because you you're could. being smart about it. Absolutely. And then you get to the issue of what does it cost to pay your bills? You know, you can write checks. You can you can use a you can get a debit card that would allow, that would let you do it. Uh, as most of the world is today, is pretty technolo- pretty technologically sophisticated. Most people pay their their accounts with debit cards and online. Anyway, well, Hersh- so. you know, Hershey's gone to digital only. They don't take. <laughs> Oh, or uh, credit cards. They don't, they're not mm-hmm. taking cash. I mean, very rarely will you see a kiosk at Hershey anymore that's taking cash. So uh, this idea of going to cashless is kind of interesting. The one thing I want to say to people that I did years ago, long before, frankly, I got married, and we're coming up on the end of the show, so I'll finish with this, is I stopped doing ATMs because you cannot keep track of how much money you don't have. So if you if you learn to create some budgets, and we'll do a show on that, that would be probably really wise. But I found ATMs were just a really bad idea. I, I stopped that 30 years ago. Uh, listen, guys, Gordon Cooley, Bill Dodson, so great to have you with us. Uh, Bill, any final thoughts for wisdom from, uh, from down under? Be, no, my last thought would be I agree with you. The, 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 the small guy is going to get hurt worse than this than the big guy. Um, the cost to buy a new car, the interest rates are going to go up 7 8%, the cost to refinance, the cost to buy a home. You're right. The small guy is going to get hurt the worst in this rate environment. All right. Have a great week. Thank you, guys. We'll be right back next Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Have a great week.